welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. In the last episode from my own reviewing Hall of Shame, I mentioned the coincidence of attending a webinar where Edward Lee talked about the toxic culture of rejection. And this was based on a blog post he wrote in 2022. So here you can get to hear from Edward directly, where we discuss the culture of rejection. And, and this is in computer science, especially the area that we both work in. The problems with peer reviewing, the nature of conferences, and also how we might approach reviewing differently and how we can start to change the culture around publications, acceptance rates and evaluations without losing quality standards. As you will hear, I did waylay him with questions as he was trying to give an intro to his background. So I'll, I'll read from his bio here. So Edward A. Lee has been working on embedded software systems for more than 40 years. After studying and working at Yale, MIT and Bell Labs, he landed at Berkeley, where he's now professor of the graduate school in EECS. His research is focused on cyber-physical systems. He leads the open source software project Lingua Franca and previously to Lemmy2. He's a co-author of textbooks on embedded systems, signals and systems, digital communications, and philosophical and social implications of technology. So this is a longer interview, and I would encourage you to listen through to the end if you can, as he's so many good things to say that might just prompt all sorts of reflections about how you approach reviewing and how we might engage in reviewing practices more generally in our peer communities. Also, as forewarning, we talk about blind reviewing at some point. While this has been standard terminology that's been used for a long time in our academic communities, um, when we talk about our anonymous review processes, I do appreciate that this terminology can be experienced as ableist and perpetuate harmful stereotypes. So towards this on the episode webpage, I also link to an article discussing this if you're looking for alternative language such as anonymous review process. So I hope you enjoy this discussion with Edward Lee. Edward, thank you very much for joining me for today. And uh, I know that the reason why I want to talk to you is so that, that we can pick up and discuss some of the themes that you've been talking about in, uh, in an article, a blog post last year around the toxic culture of rejection and uh, peer review more generally. But before we get to that, do you want to just give a brief introduction to yourself, your background? Uh, sure, I'm happy to do that. First, uh, thanks, Geraldine, for uh, in inviting me to do this. I, I've been following your blog uh, and really enjoying it, I, I think. It's um, creating a dialogue in the community that I think is really needed. Um, and so I, I think you're really performing quite a service there. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, so about me, well, I'm, uh, um, I've been working in um, sort of at the fringes of computer science uh, for uh, about 45 years, I realized much to my horror. <laughs> Um, I started way back in 1978 when I got a summer job that really turned me on to um, the problem of um, controlling physical devices with software. And mm -hmm. uh, I, was, I was working in the Yale New Haven lab um, at the hospital at uh, Yale. Uh, they were trying to automate their much of their processes in the clinical pathology lab. And uh, I was hired to write software to control some of these robots. And so that was kind of what got me started down this field. And I went to MIT for graduate school uh, for, mm -hmm. to get a master's degree and then mm -hmm. went. So can I, I just can I just interrupt Edward there? So yeah. had you done a computer science or maths degree before getting the job at the hospital in the pathology lab writing software? Mm -hmm. 
Interestingly enough, I was really only just barely getting started in computer science at the time, uh, but I had had some kind of hobbyist level experience, uh-huh. uh, and, and so somehow they saw fit to hire me anyway. Oh, um, brilliant! So it was—I saw it really as part of my education, mm. and and in fact, um, you know, after getting my master's at MIT, I went to Bell Labs, and that was another part of my education. I mean, it's a it was an incredible experience. I worked mm. with some amazing people, learned a lot. Um, I was surrounded by people with PhDs, and so I kind of decided that I really wanted to be one of them. Mm. And, uh, yeah, back to school, and uh, went to Berkeley and never left. I got got to <laughs> Berkeley in eighty two, and uh, that's now you know forty one years ago, and uh, I never left. Is that unusual in the U.S. system? It is pretty unusual. Um, Berkeley doesn't like to hire its own Ph.D. graduates, at least not right away. And I'm one of the few that they did. Um, Mm. I I think basically some of the faculty weren't paying attention when they did it. (laughs) And then having hired you, they couldn't. It's hard to get rid of you. That's right. Exactly. Uh, I don't think they would have hired me today. But uh, (laughs) So I'm curious, why would you say that? Well, I think that um, a big part of it is that the whole um, process has become so hyper-competitive that I mm. don't think they've given me a second look today. Um, I did, didn't have anywhere near the qualifications that uh, that you would need today just to get, you know, considered for a possible interview. Mm. And are you talking about that in terms of the usual number of publications, venues for publication, that sort of thing? Yes, I think that's a very big part of it. That's what yeah. part of it gets your foot in the door is um, yeah. that um, rather extensive publication record. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point of reflection just in the context of what we're going to talk about too isn't it that if, you know that seems to be like a huge difference from 41 years ago is that gradual well has it been a gradual or has it been a rapid increase in the hyper competitiveness and the 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 increasing levels that people need to achieve in order to just as you said pass the the filtering process to be invited for interview I think it has been gradual. I mean, it's sort of, you know, to me, it feels a bit like that uh, old adage about the, you know, the frog in the pot of water mm. on the stove, mm. right? That you don't yeah. notice that the water is getting warmer and warmer and then hot and then all of a sudden you're, you know, being cooked. Yeah. <laughs> so I I think it's been that kind of a process. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been a little bit on you know, battling with, um, uh, you know, some people who are decision makers on this because of, you know, the criteria that are used, for example, um, highly selective conferences are considered mm. better than less selective conferences. And based mm. on my experience, the, um, you know, the acceptance at many of these conferences is really pretty random. Yeah. And, so it seems like maybe we're giving preference to lucky people, uh, which yeah. is probably really the criterion we want to be using. Um, I mean, I guess it's nice to, to have lucky people, but you know, well, past luck is no mm. promise for the future. So, mm. yeah, lucky. You could suggest that we could just put uh, everything into a pot and draw draw lots, and really make it a game of chance. I mean that, and Lucky is probably referring to. I, I don't know about your experience, but I, if I reflect on mine, I would think that there are a small number of papers that it didn't matter who reviewed them; they'd say this is really interesting, great, accept it. And there's a small number of papers where people, no matter who review it, will say it's just it's all over the place, or it's not there, or or something. And it's the majority of papers that fall into that middle that um, in lots of ways do come down to to the luck. And, you know, 
in terms of who your reviewers are, what mood they're in, you know, because there are research studies that talk about whether, uh, at least in the judicial system, and I have no reason, it's, it's, could think that this could also apply to us doing any sort of evaluation, that judges are more likely to give, is it harsher sentences at the end of the day when they're tired or hungry, you know, or end of the morning when they're hungry or whatever, um, you know, or there, there are lots of other conditions that influence our judgments. And I think also about the rhythm of program committee meetings, and you can see people being cranky at some points and being, oh, look, just accepted at other points. And you know, do, you, do you see things like that happening as well? Yeah, I think there's a, you know, a number of issues. Um, you know, one of them is that in computer science, there's this tremendous emphasis on conferences over mm. most yeah. of the subdisciplines, not all the subdisciplines, yeah. but in most of them. And um, one of the downsides, well, there's, there's a number of downsides for conferences as kind of a, a peer review institution, right? One is that the set of reviewers is fixed ahead of time. Um, you know, it's a program committee that gets put mm. together. And there's not really an option to, you know, send papers out to true experts in the area of the paper. Um, so you often get your papers reviewed by people who really don't know anything about what you're writing mm. about. Yeah. And, and then that comes through in the reviews. And um, and the other problem is that there's really no no real opportunity for a dialogue with the reviewers, right? Mm. If they they give you a review that's based on sort of a foundational misunderstanding uh, that you might be might be able to easily correct in a journal review process. Um, there's not really an opportunity in the conference review process, and mm. you know, even I mean, many of the conferences have established a nominal rebuttal phase, um, but in my experience, I've I've served on a lot of program committees. I've never seen a decision overturned uh, by the rebuttal. And um, I think the rebuttals are typically very limited in in length and um, they're they're ineffective. Mm. Um, so it doesn't create the kind of dialogue that's possible in a review of a journal paper. Yeah. Uh, so I think that those factors tend to lead to um, well, a couple of effects. One is a certain amount of randomness in the selection process, but also a certain amount of conservatism. I think that yes. you know papers that sort of fall really squarely within the theme themes that the conference has really emphasized a lot, where a lot of the you know the paper cites a lot of the program committee members uh, and um, you know speaks to marginal improvements on work that has been published in that conference before mm. those papers are a lot more likely to get accepted than papers that are a little bit more on the fringe which yeah. i think is, is too bad in many ways because i think it makes the conferences a lot less interesting yes um, and you know in many of the conferences that i go to i find that that people don't bother attending the talks uh, which is sort of sad um you know they're they're there for the hobnobbing and, um, and mm. you know, the rooms where the talk is given are are sparsely attended and people yeah. are on their laptops doing their email. Uh, yeah, yes, yeah. And, that you know. raises a question. You know, you said that conferences are, are, especially in the computer science area, are, are regarded as our main publication venue. What What do you, what would you say conferences are for? now like if you know, what's the real role of conferences given the 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 tension i guess between it's our main publication venue and people don't go to listen to the conferences they're hobnobbing so you know should we be yeah. redefining rethinking the role of conferences well i think um you know i think it's always been true that a big part of the role of a conference is the hobnobbing it's yeah. sort of the opportunity to meet and talk to other people in your field. And often it's the informal conversations that are the most valuable. Um, and I think they, they, you know, conferences really still do serve that purpose. Uh, but that's pretty orthogonal to the publication uh, aspect of it. And in fact, it's a little bit 
to some degree at odds with it because um, in a in a highly selective conference, especially, I mean, in, you know, many people in the field will attend a conference only if they have a paper uh, yes. that's being presented at that conference. Yeah. And um, as a consequence, I think the, you know, collection of people who show up for the conference is also somewhat randomly selected. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not really thought through as, you know, part of the organization of the conference. Um, you know, there's no effort to, you know, make sure that some of the leading, you know, thinkers are present to mm. just to talk to people in the halls, if nothing else. Mm. Right. Um, so, you know, I mean, for that reason, I've, I've really uh, gravitated a lot more towards preferring much more informal workshops or, mm. you know, conferences that are organized in a more ad hoc way where you kind of have some idea ahead of time, uh, who you're going to interact with. And of course you always meet people that are new, new to you completely, which is also one of the missions of the conferences. Mm. But, um, but, you know, the, the sort of big name conferences, um, uh, I think are a little less effective in that role. Uh, yeah. On the publication side, I think, you know, a big part of their mission has become resume building. And, yes. Yes. And, and the know, papers don't get read because they're often they are the big conferences, and even if they're highly selective, there's still a large number of papers, and they on very diverse topics within the broad umbrella of the conference area. At least I'm thinking about our own human computer interaction area, and they're often buried, and they don't get to talk to the communities of people that they want to, that you would get to talk to if you were at the sort of workshop that you were talking about with others who have identified as being really keen in this particular topic area. Right. I think that's um, that's one of the big challenges. And I think um, the other thing is that, you know, some of the criteria that are used for selecting papers Mm. I think somewhat intrinsically makes them less interesting, right? Mm. Because, uh, and in particular, I put my finger on the uh, sort of obsessive focus on novelty. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the fact is that most of us um, would learn a lot more from a talk that is presenting nothing novel than a talk that's presenting only novel things. Mm. Um, I mean, it. you know, if you present only novel things, first of all, you're building on almost inevitably, you're building on an enormous uh, backdrop of prior art. And most of the people in the room are simply not familiar with mm. that prior art. Mm. And so they're not going to get much out of that, you know, incremental improvement over that prior art that yeah. adds to the body of knowledge about it. And the fact that, uh, you know, there's no, there's sort of a uh, a prejudice against papers that are broader uh, uh, that um, makes the the presentation of the papers in these conferences sort of intrinsically less interesting for most of the mm. people. Yeah. And I think that that also, it sort of reflects what I think of as a really profound misunderstanding on the purpose of publication. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a classical view of, the purpose of publication, which is essentially to add knowledge to the archive. Mm. And I think that, um, you know, I was very influenced by reading um, Thomas Kuhn's uh, Structure of Scientific Revolution and realized when I read that book that um, that this idea of sci a science progressing by just aggregating facts in the archive is just a complete misunderstanding of how science mm. progresses. Mm. Um, you know, uh, so I I feel like the purpose of publication, we should understand that the per the primary purpose of publication is to communicate with other humans. Yeah. And that's a different objective than just adding to the archive of facts. Yeah. And, you know, historically, there's good reasons for the, the emphasis on you know, on novelty, right? It used to be expensive to publish. Yeah. Um, every page that got published displaced possible other pages that might yes. have got published. Um, and costs money. This is, no, 
Yeah, and it costs money. And But this is no longer true. And it hasn't been true for a while. And it seems to me that we should be focusing on publishing papers that are more likely to be read by other humans. Yes. Um, and that's not the emphasis that we're putting on in the, in the whole publication process. Yeah. Yeah, because it's in the dialogue and the connection of ideas amongst people as you and, – and, and I think that's what happens in a lot of the workshops that you, you mentioned where it – I don't know, the, the sort of workshops I'm thinking of, that they are often based more on dialogue and workshopping, you know, so you you may have some way of presenting your position, you know, some position paper or maybe a poster or a very short, this is who I am, what I'm bringing to the discussion. But then most of the workshops are based around then workshopping those topics and bringing people together to discuss. And I know that I've always felt like I've gone away with new insights and new connections because of that communicating with other humans and sharing ideas. Right. I think that, um, so one of the things that uh, I have uh, done, I you know, I guess you asked me earlier to give you my background. I uh, a few years ago, uh, I started kind of a side project that was looking at um, our field more, kind of stepping back and trying to understand uh -huh. it, uh, its relation to society and culture, and try to understand it from a more philosophical and sociological perspective. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things that I came to realize is that, um, you know, a, a scientific discipline progresses in a very cultural way, um, that it's yeah. it's really about a human culture developing and evolving. And, and it tends to evolve in a very chaotic way. And uh, there's Darwinian forces of natural selection there. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, for ideas, innovative ideas to really catch on um, in such an environment where they, in order to catch on, they have to kind of become part of a culture. And I think it's necessary for ideas to be reinvented several times in several different ways. Yeah. For people to come together and compare perspectives that, you know, are really ultimately perhaps just different perspectives on the same thing. Yes. And the ideas that really catch on are the ones that often get this sort of repeated reinforcement, repeated re-examination. Mm. And this obsessive focus on novelty stifles mm. that. Yes. It, it prevents that kind of dialogue from happening. And I think that it serves as an obstacle to new ideas catching on rather than a facilitator. Yes. Yes. Indeed. And you're also making me think about, um, in in thinking about stepping back and taking that broader societal and cultural perspectives and, and sort of you know, philo philosophical aspects and so on, it's also pointing to the critical importance of different disciplinary perspectives in these dialogues as well, and especially given the complexity of the challenges that we're facing today as a society, as cultures, and you know the uh, the ways in which technology is intricately implicated in all of that, as as is increasingly being discussed now, which is very encouraging. But our review practices and our um, dis subdisciplinary silos, you know, even within computer science, our subdisciplinary silos are very. Um, counter I lost the word that I'm trying to find they're just against the the whole thing of um, exploring things at the intersections of disciplines and so you get reviewed by someone within the silo who doesn't really who will say that this contribution is very shallow within the silo but the the really important thing is the connection that's being made across disciplines or that uh, bringing in the right experts from a different disciplinary perspective to bring to bear their their view and that can be really important and how do we deal with that tension of our disciplinary silos in which we get evaluated in which the hyper competition often happens and the cross-disciplinary dialogues and connections that need to be made uh, to really make those true progressions that you're talking about 
Yeah, I think that our processes really do um, tend to suppress multidisciplinary work. Mm. Um, and, you know, I find myself often, you know, mentoring young faculty, right, pre-tenure. And uh, I usually tell them, you know, they should avoid multidisciplinary work. Stick to stick to a narrow discipline mm. until you have tenure, um, which is really, really unfortunate. Um, the yeah. other thing that I think tends to get suppressed by our processes are what I call systems papers. Mm. So papers that describe, you know, kind of holistic solutions to problems. Mm. And, you know, one of the challenges with such a paper is that any holistic solution to any interesting problem uh, builds on a lot of very well-known things. And so every reviewer sees in the paper a lot of well-known things mm. and rejects the paper as lacking mm. novel. Mm. Uh, and so it's very difficult to publish systems papers. And uh, and it's unfortunate in many ways because often these are the papers that, you know, they take um, an army of graduate students, three years of intensive work mm. to produce this one result. And none of them can get it published. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, basically that kind of work is very ill-advised uh, yet. You know, personally, I find that kind of work very valuable from both a educational perspective and from a, a disciplinary perspective. I think. Yes. Um, yeah. But it's uh, ill-advised for graduate students to do that, right? Because um, mm. they're not going to get the publication record that they need if they want to go into academia, at least. That's sad that we have to play the game until we've ticked all the boxes, got tenure, and can then actually get on and do what's needed, not just what we want to do, what we find interesting, but what's needed to contribute to society you know, through the work that we do. Yeah, although in some ways, um, you know, in my experience, the, the tenure barrier doesn't really solve the problem in that regard. It doesn't really liberate you unless you stop advising graduate students. <laughs> because, you know, uh, if you're advising graduate students, then a big part of your responsibility is helping them to develop uh -huh. their career. Yeah. And, and you you have to play the game the way it's played in order for that to be effective. Um, that's that's what I'm grappling with personally is how do I navigate that thing of trying to argue for a different way of doing science or evaluating science, evaluating success, etc. And at the same time recognize that I do have students, um, early career researchers who still need to to navigate the game as it is now. And how do we navigate, how do we, especially I think as more senior people, how can we help be agents of change in not just, I don't know, working with the status quo in helping students so that they're not disadvantaged now and also be changing it? What do we need to do? Well, one of the challenges, I think, is, um, uh, you know, don't get me wrong in the following sense. Uh, I'm not advocating for a less competitive environment. Mm. I, I think that, you know, we do want to, we, you know, no matter what our students do in life, they're going to, in order to succeed, they're going to need to learn to play the game, whatever mm. the game is. Yeah. Um, what concerns me is that we've set up rules of the game that are not good for the community. Yeah. That, that in many ways, even though we, we could have rules that would lead to kind of just as competitive an environment where, you know, it is a struggle for students to succeed and be heard. Um, but maybe their work would have more impact than it does today. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I, I mean, I, I have seen uh, very talented students who, you know, they get rejection after rejection and they leave the field. Yeah. And I don't think that serves our field well. No. If, 
you know, particularly if, I mean, I have enough experience in this field that I can tell the difference between a really good paper and, a, and one that's not so good. And it's really good papers that are getting rejected. Mm. And um, so, you know, we are through this process, basically, um, we're not properly cultivating our, our uh, talent, right? We're not really seeking the best. Mm. And in fact, we're um, s- sending some of the best to uh, the competition, right? Mm. They go they go work for Google or Apple, make twice as much money mm. as they would in academia, yeah. and um, they don't have to publish anything. And of course, that's a whole different game that they have to yeah. play yeah. there. Um, but, uh, you know, they... Uh, I, it seems to me a mistake to be... Um, mm you know, sending some of our best talent, driving them out of the field. Um, So are there patterns that you're seeing, you know, when you talk about good papers getting rejected, uh, are there patterns that you're seeing? You you mentioned systems papers just before. Is that one pattern of a type of paper that's more often getting rejected that's a good paper? And are there other patterns? Um, It's... It, it's sort of, I mean, you know, to some degree, I think um, the reviews can be so random that um, it's it's hard to discern patterns, right? Mm. I've seen situations where one reviewer recommends rejecting the paper because the results are obvious and unknown, and the other reviewer, sorry, are obvious and well-known. Yes. And... Uh, the reviewer right next to him um, argues that the results are wrong. And, you know, they can't, these two reviewers can't both possibly be right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that just says something about the review process more than about the papers. And I think one of the big problems is that uh, the way we've structured the reviewing process in our discipline um Serving on a program committee can be a nightmarish job. Mm. Um, you know, you get the the paper deadline comes in, you get assigned 15 papers and you've got 10 days to review them. And, um, you know, you're in desperation during those 10 days to try to manage this process. Um, you know, if you have an army of graduate students, you might farm out some of the work, but they're, you know, graduate students are very inexperienced. Uh, mm. Or you stay up really late and you, you know, you're you're really tired and in a bad mood. You're tired and cranky. You're tired and cranky. And, you know, your your job, because the goal of the conference is to have the lowest acceptance rate possible in order to be ranked highly, um, your job is to find a reason to reject this paper mm. um, as opposed to find a reason for, to, you know, or, yeah. or, or maybe find the papers that would be most useful to the attendees at the conference, right? Suppose that were our, our criterion. Um, that would be an entirely different criterion. Yeah. Um, but I mean, sometimes in program committee meetings, I have seen uh, the chairs and, you know, I would hope of, done this myself in past, sort of suggest that if this paper has generated such discussion in this room, isn't this exactly the sort of paper we want at the conference because it's going to generate that discussion more broadly? And is that not a good enough criteria to accept it? You know, like if there's no, I don't know, in our our area, I can talk about fundamental flaws. You know, if there's no sort of fundamental problematic with the paper, if it's Controversial, that's exactly the sort of paper that is going to advance discussion engagement. Yeah, I think that there's a social dynamic, however, that tends to dominate over that, which is that the naysayers are heard much more than the the yaysayers. I mean, you know, one of the things that I find in program committees is, uh, you know, the, the program chairs will say, well, we need a champion this paper Mm. and nobody steps forward because championing a paper is is really kind of risky uh you know 
in you're in a community of rather expert peers and you're going to stand up and say you really like this paper you know in mm. order to do that you kind of have to really know that paper well mm. um, and you've got you know 14 other papers you just reviewed and you're you're barely scrambling to remember which paper wait which paper are we, mm. are we talking about mm -hmm. um and so nobody steps forward to champion it and then it gets rejected um and you know the other thing i've seen is simply one uh i don't know we all know the sort of loudmouth senior usually male professors um who will just you know arrogantly state oh this is complete crap you know this this stuff was done 30 years ago i i i had papers 30 years ago that yes did, you know and <laughs> um and nobody wants to argue with that guy mm -hmm. um and so it, it just gets rejected yeah it's uh, sad that i recognize that pattern <laughs> it is and the other thing similarly that um i i see happen a lot is you know, you might have the three reviewers for the paper, but then because people can't reach a decision, they'll say we need a fourth reviewer from the room, you know, and we'll come back to this paper later after they've read it. And it's often someone who hasn't read the paper beforehand, who's been already uh, clearly reacting negatively to the paper in the discussions and, and sort of contributing negative arguments, who will be the one to volunteer to be the the extra reader reviewer and you know that they're orienting to finding reasons to reinforce their opinion that it shouldn't be accepted and you know i'd love to see just you know because i want to sort of get to thinking about what might be some different rules you know one rule that i wouldn't mind seeing is people can't self-select to read to be the additional reader of a paper to help break some deadlock in decision that that should be the chair's decision to try to find someone who can be a little bit more objective or neutral if that's possible, but um, not do the self-serving select self-selection, you know, to reinforce an agenda or a platform, which, because you know the inevitable outcome, they're going to come back to the second day of the program committee meeting and say, oh, yeah, like, as I expected, this is total rubbish, whatever, and it'll get rejected. Mm -hmm. And they've done a quick read at 11 o'clock at night after dinner and a few drinks or whatever. And yeah. Right. Now, I mean, I think part of the problem we face as a community is that um, there is no obvious way to reconcile all these conflicting goals, right? Mm. If, our, mm. if we really want to be ranking our conferences on the basis of low acceptance rates, um, then... Um, you know, we're going to have to either tremendously step up our game in peer reviewing, which I don't mm. see how that can possibly happen. We don't have the bandwidth to do that. We, and we don't have the numbers either. We, do we, we don't have the numbers. Um, yeah. So I don't think that's really a possibility. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that it would behoove us to look at how other communities work. Um, I mean, I, I, uh, you know, talk to uh, my wife, who's in operations research, and um, uh, her field is completely different, right? The conferences are not, they're not even, you don't, you don't really even put your conference uh, publications on your resume much. Mm. Uh, you know, the purpose of the reviewing in their conferences is just to keep the charlatans out, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. So you don't have some, you know, completely random stuff yeah. that, yeah. Uh, that gets through your review process. And then, and, and one of the big advantages of that then is that um, pretty much everyone in the community goes to the main conference. And mm. you know, so it's a real gathering place for the people in the community. And um, they have lots of parallel sessions, which tend to be pretty specialized. And so they function a little more like workshops mm. um, where there's a lot of give and take uh, among a subset of the community and then a lot of hobnobbing in the hallway. Yeah. And uh, I, I sort of feel like those kind of conferences are, are working in a very different way yeah. from ours. I'm sort of envious. Uh, yeah. I'd, yeah. I'd kind of like ours to work a little more like that. But um, what you said, and it also reflects my own um, experience of conferences, what I do and what I see others do, 
we are voting for that with our feet anyway by not attending the paper sessions and staying out in the corridors and talking. So it sort of feels like we're already in that little bit of a transition towards that model. And I like that idea of reframing conferences as gathering places for the yeah. communicating and sharing ideas and discussing ideas you know, with other humans interested in similar topics. Right. And I think that, um, you know, we can leave the journals for the, for mm. the collection of, of archive. Mm. Um, what about the issue of funding, though? Because I'm, I'm, I guess that this is such a complex problem when we think about it as a cha culture change problem, isn't it? Because a lot of funding um, that people can get to attend a conference, many institutions that I know of tie the availability of funding to having a peer-reviewed publication. So we would need institutions to rethink their conference funding, you know, travel funding models. And I, I know that we're also exploring across all our communities new hybrid versions of conferences as well um, coming out of COVID experience. But, you know, we would need that culture change at an institutional level that will accept gathering as a legitimate reason for getting funding? Well, um, I, I think if you were to follow the model more like these applied probability conferences, mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't think that's a problem because it, it, you you do submit something for peer review. It gets accepted. You get okay. a 15-minute slot in one of the parallel sessions to present your work in a... Mm -hmm. A fairly specialized session that's uh, where they've collected the papers that are sort of in the cluster of work that you do. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's a much larger number of people who are actually um, presenting papers and going, okay. you know, appearing in the proceedings of the conference. Um, so I don't think that would run up afoul with these institutional rules. There's other um, institutional rules that I think are, you know, kind of problematic these days. Mm -hmm. uh, I've run across a lot of institutions now that are making um, publishing in a peer-reviewed venue a requirement for getting a particular degree mm, yeah. um, or getting a, a, a particular promotion. Um, and, you know, these kind of rules, I think, uh, particularly in our field where the, the uh, reviewing has so much randomness in it, this is this is cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, it, you know, yeah. whether someone gets a degree should not be dependent on this kind of random process. No. I, I, um, I started teaching a course to our PhD students called "From Surviving to Thriving," <laughs> trying to sort of address some of these issues and and trying to get them to think about well, both you know, some tools and techniques in their back pocket that they can pull out when they need it, but also just to put in more perspective what they're in control of and what they're not in control of in this random process of academia and and um, academic, academic achievement. And one of the things that I really encourage is that people celebrate submitting a paper or submitting a grant application. Like that's when they have the yay cup of tea and cake in the kitchen um, celebration. And of course, if it gets accepted, yeah, then another excuse for a piece of cake. But you know, that's what you're in control of, submitting a piece of work that you're proud of, that you're happy with, that you've, you know, that you've completed. And and in that sense, I'd love to see institutions then change that maybe that, that people at least submitted a piece of work for peer review, like a serious piece of work, not, not any sort of random thing that is a tick in a box. And I know that we open up that um, workaround as well. But recognizing what they are in control of and not creating increased layers of stress for people around things that they're not in control of. They can influence by the quality of their paper, but not you know, really in the final selection of reviewers or what mood they're in when they get to review it. Yeah, I guess, I mean, in, in my opinion, an institution that has these kind of requirements um, for peer-reviewed publications for a certain functions like getting degrees, uh, that, in my opinion, is actually completely inappropriate. I, I, 
I think that um, institutions should be prepared to do their own evaluation of their mm-hmm. people. And they shouldn't be outsourcing their evaluation to program committees in the community that are yeah, already that's a good by point. a barrage of papers. Um, they should be making their own judgments yeah. about who should get a degree and who should not get a degree, or who should get a promotion or who should not get a promotion. So if they're unable, if they're unqualified to make those judgments, then they shouldn't be in that business. Yeah. That's a really good point about not outsourcing the evaluation to external people. And again, I'm reflecting my own area because I think coming from the human-computer interaction area, we're in many ways um, not as mainstream or understandable to many people in computer science as other areas like databases or logic or whatever. And I think that um, we also need to have a generosity in evaluating work with it, of our colleagues if we were doing it at an institutional level to really understand what's good work in their field, even if I don't understand it myself and don't do it myself. You know, how is what are the criteria there and how is this work fitting there? And I think that's a really important part of the interdisciplinary thing as well. And I'm talking about interdisciplinary here, as I said, even within the sub-silos within our bigger disciplines, is understanding what are the valuable contributions that each of us can make to solving the bigger problems, you know, and how do we bring them together? And and I can see that being a good trigger step to um opening up perspectives of different ways of engaging in key questions, say, contributing to computer science as our area, but I'm sure it would apply to other disciplinary areas as well. Yeah, I think that, I mean, HCI is a really interesting area from this perspective because I I feel like it's intrinsically multidisciplinary. Yes. Um, And I I know, you know, when I was department chair, we were, it, it was during a period where we were actually we had been trying for for years to grow the HCI area, and every time we tried to hire someone, there would be these huge fights that would happen. That were you know fights that about <laughs> you know well you know, and it was really all about the interdisciplinary mm. uh, nature of the work being difficult to evaluate, right? Yes. So, yeah. And I think that 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 uh, that field is probably you know more vulnerable because of its intrinsic nature um, but i think every part of computer science ha- can benefit from interdisciplinary work and then i think our processes tend to discourage that yeah what could we do to encourage it a bit more do you think well i think that one very simple thing we could do is change what we're looking for as program committee members mm-hmm. when we look at when we evaluate papers yeah. we should say does this paper represent something that our community would benefit from hearing about that can you should repeat be that i think that that's worth repeating can you repeat that statement does this the, paper yeah does this does this paper does uh, will our community benefit from hearing about this content? Mm. Okay, that should be the dominant criterion. Um, is there value in, you know, imagine this being presented in front of a room full of our peers. Um, is this going to be valuable to a significant subset of the people there? Mm-hmm. And, you know, often the papers that are provably novel will fall flat on their face according to that criterion. Mm. Right? They won't be they they will be of interest to a tiny subset of people which is you know really suggests a, a, a journal paper, right? Mm. To kind of add to the archive, uh, the people who are really interested will all get it in their email inbox uh, sent by the author. Um and um you know the the criterion should be, you know, what is uh, informative, interesting, uh, and potentially valuable and useful to the mm. community. But I don't see the, I don't hear those criteria used in in program committees. Mm. Um, 
I know that there are many um, steering committees of conference areas. I'm on one myself where this is actually a really timely topic of conversation because I think, again, because of the COVID experience, it's, it, it is asking us to step back and reflect a little bit more on what we're doing and why. And, and now might be a good time. And hopefully people listening to this may want to think about adding that as explicit criteria, what's informative, interesting and valuable and useful. And also what you said to many people in the audience it doesn't have to be to the hundred percent because it's not going to be but yeah, is it going to be interesting and valuable enough to enough people to have it there right but yeah so important um yeah. what you know in in looking at sort of to, looking towards sort of wrapping up a bit what would be some other positive steps forward or changes that you think could be needed and that could be at our individual level of action at program committee level of action or institutions or governmental bodies that set policies you know i can see implications at all those levels or our professional societies anything that you'd want to throw in them as 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 particularly important or possible to start with as change steps well i guess there's one other a uh, hard problem that I don't have a really good solution for, but I think it's important that we recognize that it's a problem, um, which is the the double blind process, which has mm -hmm. become you know universal in among the conferences that I'm involved in. And uh, there's very good reasons for it. And I think um, you know we all I think we all understand why this this double blind process was put into place. but one of the things that it it creates quite a number of distortions. So, for example, I would like to see conferences um, be a little bit biased towards accepting papers from more junior people. Mm -hmm. When when it's sort of the the core PhD work of a young PhD student who doesn't have much of a publication record, we should there should be some allowances. You know, mm -hmm. for, for a certain number of flaws, uh, an imperfect paper mm -hmm. uh, that we would like to nevertheless get ex exposure in the community, right, yeah. uh, for that person. Uh, in the double blind process, you know, I think, I mean, I've, I've been subject to this prejudice myself. I start reading a paper and I have in my mind, you know, some graybeard curmudgeon is the author <laughs> and <laughs> and i'm not terribly inclined to be very generous um you know it's so this you know double blindness is uh, i think a, a bit of a double-edged sword mm. the other thing i mean one of the reasons for the double blind is that uh, people have recognized it, you know certain prejudices that have arisen um where reviewers would, um, you know, maybe inadvertently discount papers with female authors or yes. discount papers from second tier institutions compared or to first different tier. regions in the world or different regions in the world. And these are these are all very real problems. But there's a flip side to that problem, which is that the conferences are more valuable if there is a certain amount of representation from real experts, the mm. acknowledged experts in the field, right? Um, and uh, so as reviewers, we don't know who those are in the papers. Yeah. You, we, we have a very imperfect understanding of the papers, so we don't recognize it necessarily. And, um, and as a consequence, that doesn't become part of the selection criterion. Mm. And, you know, it, I think holistically, it would make for a better conference if there were also some of the top experts represented, giving their perspective on some fields, right? So, yeah. So these these are things that if we could find a way to sort of weaken a little bit the double blind process without without falling victim to the problems yeah. trying to address, um, that I think is I guess I present that as a challenge to the community. How can we do that? 
So I see one thing that I can reframe something that you said is um, when we're reviewing rather than thinking about this, the author being a curmudgeonly old grey beard, you know, um, man, professor, uh, uh, have the bring more of an attitude of generosity and assume that this is a young researcher that we want to encourage and promote. And right. and we you know if we orient to that frame, how do we read the paper differently? Right. Yeah, you because know, the double blind does depersonalize it in 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 good ways, as you said, because it reduces some of the prejudices. But in depersonalizing, it falls foul of some of the same issues with social media that we're we we sort of got this distancing, and it makes it easier to be to not think of the human at the other end. Right. Exactly. Um, mm. So I think that that's something that we need to um, we need to find a way to make sure that that you know everyone involved in the process knows that we're dealing with other human beings. And the phrase that I've tried to use, you know, when I um, you know assign my students to do a review is to pretend that this paper was written by their sister. And, yes. You know, how would that change just how you assess it? Nice. Right? Yep. Yep. It it points to the power that we have as reviewers that you know the 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 control that we have over being more reflective about the the frame of mind that we're bringing to reviewing a paper. Right. Right. I I mean I think reviewing papers is really a very difficult job and mm. i think you know one of the reasons for the biases that people have noticed you know that were i i think for most of my career i unquestionably benefited by being a berkeley author and that um meant my papers were more likely to get accepted even yeah. people who know me they you know they would be there would be a bias uh because of the berkeley name um but if you think of that from the reviewer's perspective, it's also that the reviewer is having a really hard time evaluating this work. It's it's often very sophisticated work. It's uh, it's it's set against a backdrop that the reviewer is not very familiar with mm. because of the way conferences are structured, right? The program committee. I mean, in a in a journal, right? A, a good associate editor will find someone who can really evaluate the paper and send it to that person mm, to review. Yeah. But that person is not very likely to be on the program committee. Exactly. So, yeah. You know, you don't get a reviewer who is who can comfortably read and assess this paper. And so um you know the paper the, the it's natural for the reviewer to fall back on oh well you know this is a big name from MIT. I I I think I can probably I don't think I need to check the proofs, you know, mm. and just mm. trust them and, and assume that this is okay and you know go on. Um whereas, you know, from another institution they might feel like they really do need to check it. Um and you know that's that's a completely understandable mm. uh thing. It's not a desirable thing, right? I yeah. mean we, in a way, we would we would like it if every paper were objectively evaluated. But frankly, I believe there is no such thing as mm. an objective evaluation of a paper. That that is nonsense, and every evaluation is subjective. Yes. And it the evaluation is a, a mishmash of the reviewer's background and the paper, and. Um, we need to recognize that, and it's uh, the you know the idea that it's an objective evaluation and that you can somehow determine a ranking of papers. This paper is better than that paper. Um, mm. It's nonsense. Yeah, yeah. And we we're having discussions about the whole best paper award as well for similar sorts of reasons. That you know, uh, really, what are the criteria for accepting that? Are there any other? Um, key changes that you think we could be just starting with towards this bigger change in the longer term? Well, I guess one is um, uh, I really wish we would uh, 
get rid of these low acceptance rates. You know, mm. there's there's not really a good reason for them. You know, the conferences can scale. Um, we know how to do parallel sessions. We know how to do poster sessions. Uh, if we have good papers, we should accept them. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that bothers me about my current pro our current process is that um, you know it's hard to get people to read your papers, right? But but now you get you know three, four, or five readers, um, but it's double blind, so they don't know who to credit. They inevitably learn something from your paper. Um, but they can't cite you. Yeah. Um, that's kind of wrong. Uh, there's sort of an ethical problem there. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, it's not uncommon for it to take several years to finally mm -hmm. get the paper published. Um, and, you know, by then the work is stale and um, the reviewers have forgotten who they learned this from. And I know. Yeah, it's not that people are being unethical. Well, most people are not deliberately stealing the idea, but you can't help but just have it incorporated in your brain and connected to other things you know and forget where the connections come from. Yeah, exactly. So it's interesting that one of the things that I've been reading, uh, you know, people say that um, uh, ChatGPT and Sydney are – are not really human-like, right? Because they're just regurgitating a mishmash of their mm. training data. And I look at them and say, wait a minute, that's exactly what humans do. Because <laughs> um, we know, have our we, formulas for writing papers. Yeah. And, you know, we have our, our own uh, subset of training data that we, that, forms the framework within which we evaluate everything um, and within, you know, that leads us to synthesize certain things. So, you know, to me, I think that actually these AIs are really the first evidence of actually true human-like uh, <laughs> AIs. Uh, it's an interesting perspective because yeah. it is, there is a thing of uh, papers need to look a similar way or reference certain work in order to be recognized for publication in this conference area or in this journal or in this field. Oh yeah. But, you know, I, I, I am quite sure that people are going to be fine-tuning these large language mm -hmm. models. And the way the way to do it is to um, you know, uh give them a draft of your of your paper and then uh, give them the list of names on the program committee of the conference oh, that you would like yes. to submit to and have them write ha your related work section. <laughs> and it's going to be the best related work section you've ever seen. I think you've um, just given pe lots of people ideas if they hadn't already thought of this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's um, going to happen. Um, we're going to need to radically rethink all of this publication anyway and with because of chat GDP and GPT and things. But one of the things you said about getting rid of low acceptance rates, and I, I'm totally with you there, and whenever we've tried to do that in other conference series, we always get enormous pushbacks from institutions or from individuals saying, but um, that won't be acceptable to my institution because when I go for a promotion or when I go for tenure or when I go on the job market, um, they'll say that's a low-quality conference because the acceptance rate is too high. So that's an institution-level change again that we really need. Yes, um, and uh, that's that's a challenge. Um, I, I guess that the pressure that I would apply would be on the institutions and in saying, mm. well, you know, a policy like this is an indicator of a low-quality institution. Ooh, why? Um, they should be able to do their own evaluations. Mm, okay. And uh, if they can't do their own evaluations, they're not a very high-quality institution. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Any final thoughts, Edward, before we just wrap up here? Um, well, maybe just to thank you, uh, because I think, you know, you're – um, sort of stimulating these kinds of conversations is, I think, what really needs to be happening right mm. now. Um, and yeah, 
And thank you for the blog post. I'm going to put a link to the SIGBED blog post that is called The Toxic Culture of Rejection in Computer Science. Um, and there was another uh, interview that I found that I now can't see on my iPad sitting beside me that I will also link to where you talk about some of the triggers and background that led you to write that blog post, which I think people will find interesting. I, I do want to acknowledge for people listening that I recognise that Edward and I are talking from very privileged positions in a, in a way where, you know, towards the later stage, where we'd be the late career researchers and we're less beholden to the rules and the systems that are in place or it's it's safer for us to buck the the trend or you know um buck the mainstream in a way and we you know I do want to appreciate that it's really challenging for people but I'd encourage us all to think about what we can do as individuals if we're in program committee meetings to pull people up maybe and encourage them to think about are you you know think of this paper as written by your sister or um or on our selection committees in our institutions, you know, do what we can to start being part of that change. So right. thank you for all your very thoughtful uh, contributions towards this. And I think that you bring a lot of credibility to these discussions that's really needed. So thank you, Edward. Well, you're very welcome. I, I have been honestly quite surprised because I think this blog that I wrote has been the most widely read thing I've ever written. <laughs> and it's not on your Google Scholar profile, is it? Or is it? No, no it, it isn't. I mean, it's not a peer-reviewed publication. So, And yet it's probably the most impactful um, writing. Yeah, maybe. In lots of ways. Mm, great. Well, thank you. All right. Thank you. You can find the summary notes, a transcript and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And I'm really hoping that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. And you can contribute to this by rating the podcast and also giving feedback. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues. Together, we can make change happen. <laughs>